together to examine chapter 2 in what is a pretty dire situation as it relates to the characters that are involved in this historical narrative. It's, a, um, it's different than the book of Ruth uh, in the sense that uh, the Jewish people were living at that time in the, in the promised land and the covenant faithfulness of God. And, and what we find some 500 plus years later is that um, many Jews, after being allowed to go back to the promised land, back into the covenant faithfulness of God, many of the Jews remained in exile uh, by choice. And some were just born in exile uh, in, in, in Babylon. And, uh, and so that's where our, our characters are living, living. They're living in exile. And uh, in chapter 2, if you thought that chapter 1 was, just a, is, was brutal, uh, chapter 2 is equally, if not even more brutal, as we examine just what life is like living outside of God's covenant faithfulness. But I'm going to read chapter 2 in its entirety. And then I'm going to try to make some observations about the the text, and then together we'll work through some particular things that would be helpful for us to see in this chapter. And so Esther chapter 2, again, we don't know exactly who wrote Esther. Some historians think that it might have been Mordecai uh, after the events of Esther had taken place. Uh, but what we know is ultimately the, the Holy Spirit of God has, has written this uh, book and has kept it pure so that we could uh, benefit and be changed by it so many years later. And so, so chapter 2, starting with verse 1, the text says this, After these things, okay, and that, could, that could have been immediately after the events of chapter 1, or it could have been, as many historians believe, after uh, it could have been after King Ahasuerus had been defeated in battle. Uh, again, we, uh, we know King Ahasuerus as King Xerxes as well, and, uh, and we made the observation last week that perhaps the big banquet that he was throwing was a prelude to a war, that he was getting people hyped up to go to war. And so many historians, commentators believe that the events of chapter 2 are after he's been defeated, okay? So after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem and Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who's in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics, that's how the ESV translates it, let their cosmetics be given them. Verse 4. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimi, son of Kish, a Benjamite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. I read that part to you last week. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. And uh, Hadassah, Hadassah is Esther's Hebrew Name okay, and it seems that she went by Esther to conceal her Jewish background, her Jewish identity, and we'll revisit that in a moment. 
that the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young women pleased him, and and the young woman, Esther, pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Verse 12. Now, when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. Verse 14. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines, which means they would become one of his many wives. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came from Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her, his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus and into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tabeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast. So feast in chapter 1, feast here in chapter 2. For all his officials and his servants, it was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles, not the the inspired canon of Scripture Chronicles, but kind of record-keeping for this kingdom here. It was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll begin to kind of work through this chapter together. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for this this book, Lord, and it is, um, again, for me to even read this book, it's gut-wrenching. And it's just a reminder of how 
broken and sinful we are, how lost we are, how content in our lostness, how content in our sin we are, apart from your intervening work, apart from you breaking into our stony consciences, our stony hearts, and saving us. And so, Lord, as we look and observe the, just the wickedness here, God, help us to see your guiding hand of providence. Help us, Lord, to see the areas in our own lives that we need to repent of as individuals, Lord, things that we need to repent of corporately as your church. And God, as you've called us to be the conscience of society, things that we should call our culture to repentance of. And Lord, we love you and we praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning we're, we're introduced uh, to, to who we know as Esther. Okay, Hadassah is her Hebrew name, and we're introduced to Mordecai, her older cousin, her guardian. And as we go from, from Ruth to Esther, we, we shouldn't look at Esther as as moving toward being a wife as we anticipated and kind of cheered on uh, Ruth moving toward becoming the wife of, of Boaz. The, the role in Esther that's being impressed upon us uh, isn't Esther as wife, okay? It's Esther as queen. So we want to kind of hold that in our heads as we, as we move through this narrative together. We're not looking at Esther and saying, here's a template, here's a template of a godly marriage, Right? That's not what, this is not the, the model marriage, in, in case we were wondering. Uh, but we're looking at Esther here, and we're saying, uh, we're watching her in her role as queen, and, and what it is that God brings about from her being queen here. And in our opening scene, we see a more cooled down, a more calm, a more collected, if you will, uh, King Ahasuerus, King Xerxes. Our text said that his anger had abated. And a lot of times when, you're, when your anger cools and when some time has passed, uh, you can begin to forget why you were angry in the first place. You know, what, what in the world was I even mad about? And it seems, seems that the king had to remember okay? he had to remember, he had to remember that, that he was put to open shame by by Queen Vashti, by her refusing to play the part of, of puppet and to go along with this demeaning and dehumanizing of her person. So he remembers this, or, or is reminded about it after some time has passed, and his young men, the texts call them young men, who probably lived in his home, who our text says they, they attended him, that was their role, was to attend to him, which means they were, they were servants, they aided him in the plan of finding a new queen. And what ensues from here is a competition. Okay, That's what we see going on in Esther chapter 2. We see a competition, and this competition is even more crass than what we see happen in chapter 1. Okay, and so boys and girls, if you're listening, King Ahasuerus and his kingdom, he was a very bad man, and this was a very bad kingdom. The antithesis, as we'll see, of King Jesus, who's a good king, right, in his kingdom, which is a good, flourishing kingdom. But we find out that there's a competition that happens 
by an edict given by King Ahasuerus in his wicked kingdom. And, and beautiful, in, in this competition, there are beautiful young girls. Okay, again, this is the phrasing of our text. Beautiful young girls were to be sought out for the king. And so the search begins, and it's headed up by officers that are in different provinces of the kingdom. They're going to search, and they're genuinely going to take these girls. And they're going to take them to bring them before the king. And they're going to be judged based on their appearance. And they're going to be judged based on their submissiveness. Everything is about, as we see in this society here that we're reading about, everything is about the outward appearance. Everything is about the willingness that these women had to have to assimilate even more into King Ahasuerus's world. Now, I said that these, these girls were taken, and, and I don't necessarily mean forcibly, although that, that could have happened if the girls refused. Right? They, but what we need to see is they didn't have a choice in the matter. They didn't have a choice in the matter. They, they, and, and, and when they were taken, they were never going to be able to go back home. Even, if they, even the ones that weren't going to become queen, they were never going to be allowed to go back home. Right? They were going to become Ahasuerus' concubines, which means he had a lot of wives, right? which is a sinful distortion of how God created marriage. And the queen, really, and I think it would be fair to summarize it this way, we see this with Vashti, and we certainly see this with the way he wants Esther to behave, the queen was really just the chief concubine, right? She, really just the, the chief slave, if you will. Now, some of these girls may have thought that they were going to have a better life and that they didn't have to worry about their next meal, for instance. We can see that one of the benefits of Esther being so pleasing, as we'll talk about in a moment, was, was the food that she was given in addition to the women who... Uh, came in, I think, to serve her. But imagine just for a moment having to let your daughter go on a moment's notice. Just gone. Gone. Because of an edict that went out in all the land. Right? Your life was headed in one direction. Maybe there, you know, maybe there were some hopes and dreams there. I don't want to read too much Western thought into what's going on in this society. But all of that taken at a moment's notice. Right? All the plans that were made just going away at a moment's notice. That's kind of what we see going on here in chapter 2. And, and life for the boys in the kingdom of Ahasuerus wasn't any better either. The historian who I introduced you to last week, Herodotus, which uh, he you know, was writing this in the mid-400s B.C., uh, this account, he documented that 500 boys were taken every year and they were turned into eunuchs to serve in the Persian court. One commentator says this, he says, there was nothing sexist about what was going on in the empire per se. The empire would, would happily draft people's sons to serve as the king's eunuchs if it felt there was a need and if they were qualified the modern slogan, my body, my choice, wouldn't translate well in ancient culture. In the world of the Persians, everything anyone possessed, including one's body, could be and was claimed by the empire if 
the empire wanted it. All right, so, so these women, they were claimed by the empire, and they were placed under a particular eunuch named Haggai, who he could have been taken at some point. We don't know, but he could have been taken and forced to serve. No, if anyone's lining up to become a eunuch, right? But but he was in charge of getting uh, the women prepared to have their night with the king. That's what his role was. And and this night would end with them either becoming queen or them becoming a concubine. Okay. Now now one of these women is Esther, right? Mordecai's cousin, and Mordecai that we're introduced to in this chapter, seem to be in a, in a, an important official of sorts. And, and we know this because he stayed at Susa in the citadel, verse 5. And, and he did that before Esther became queen. And again, when you hear Susa, the citadel, kind of think a modern-day equivalent is something like the Kremlin, if you will, okay? But many commentators suggest that that Susa, the citadel, this place where Mordecai worked and lived and stayed and thus Esther was there with him, that that would have been the prime spot to find the king's new queen. So, So theoretically, the further away from the kingdom you were, the further away from this wicked kingdom that you were, the safer you were, okay? The, 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 um, uh, the closer you were, the more likely you were to be taken, especially if you were beautiful. And the author of Esther tells us that Esther was beautiful. It says that she had a beautiful figure and that she was lovely to look at. Right Now, that, that description alone helps us to see the, 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 the shallowness and the superficiality and lust obsession of this society here, okay? Everything here is, is so physical, and it's so materialistic, and it's so hedonistic, just pleasure for pleasure's sake, right? That's the end-all, be-all, pleasure for pleasure's sake. And we should see this mindset not just clear and pervasive in the, in the kingdom of Ahasuerus, but we should certainly see the correlation between that mindset and that pursuit that we see here in this book in our own culture as well. Right? We're not standing as some neutral third party by which we can judge as if we're, we haven't indulged in this sort of behavior and, and these sorts of inward cultivations and, and outward behaviors. Because we have been impacted, we do think that we're not past this sort of world. So Esther is taken, and she rises to the top. Okay, she, she's a very pleasing person, a, a, a deferring sort of person, sort of character. And, and she's been that way since childhood, the text tells us. Verse 20, Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. Okay, so she obeys Mordecai, and she does so. She obeys him in this instance to conceal the fact that she's a Jew. Right? She's to deceive because of how the Jews fared in the kingdom of Ahasuerus. It was dangerous to be a Jew under the rule of Ahasuerus. And you get a sense of just how much of a threat, just through reading this, the people of God are by nature to even the kingdom of man. 
The kingdom of God always intimidates godless people who wish to be autonomous, who despise the idea that they would have to give an account to someone that's over them. So Esther, her pleasing nature, it's carried over, right? This pleasing, kind of deferring sort of personality that she exhibited when Mordecai was raising her, it's carried over both into her interactions with the eunuch Haggai and eventually with the king. Esther, she's treated better than, than all of the other women because of how well she assimilated into Ahasuerus' world. Each woman had her night with the king, and Esther excelled them all, according to our scripture. The, the author of Esther says that she won, won favor, like a contest. She, she was the, 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 the best contestant of an evening of debauchery with a king, a wicked king. She, she was the antithesis here of, of, of Vashti even in her personality as it related to her desire to please and accommodate. So she's given Vashti's crown, perhaps the, the crown Vashti was supposed to wear when she was summoned but refused to come. And after Esther wears the crown, a feast is given called Esther's Feast. And, 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 and taxes are reduced in this land, which again just shows you kind of the arbitrary nature of a tyrant. Right? When he's in a good mood, some good things happen, but wrath and fury come at a moment's notice if something or someone displeases him. Now, our chapter closes with Mordecai learning of an assassination plot while sitting at the king's gate. Two of the king's eunuchs, their plan was to, to murder the king. And Mordecai tells of this plot to Esther, who's now a queen at this point, who goes to the king in the name of Mordecai. There's no secret that Mordecai is the one that has revealed this, and he's thus saved the king's life. And when the plot turns out to be true, the king has these men executed. These are brutal, dark times. And that's the end of Esther 2. There's a few things, and, and these aren't the only things that we could pull from this historical narrative that we find in chapter 2 here. But these are, these are just a few things that just became glaringly obvious to me the more I read through this chapter and, and studied this chapter. And, and I gave you these as your, your takeaways in your, your worship guide, but as I've been doing the last several weeks, I'm going to flesh them out here for us this morning. But the first thing we should note is that privatizing our faith is not an option. Privatizing our faith is not an option. Right? Assimilating into the empire, okay, into the kingdom of Ahasuerus, was to privatize the faith. And that, that, that's what we see Esther do. And, and she is especially encouraged by Mordecai to do this very thing. Now, now I, I don't want to be too critical at, at this juncture as to um, making a judgment call on Mordecai or Esther, but I do want to compare and contrast for us this for for a moment um, two different people living in exile that we get in uh, in the historical narrative of of the Old Testament. But but as as we're working through this, just keep in mind that timing is everything, and we'll see that more as as this story 
unfolds for us. But here in chapter 2, we could contrast what we see with Esther particularly with what we see with Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. Okay, we, we see that these men were taken into Babylonian captivity, which is you know where Esther's living in exile at the time. But they were taken, according to the book of Daniel, because of their looks and because of their youthfulness. Okay, so and this was again, this was years before the events of Esther, but it's the same kingdom. Okay, it's the same kingdom, the same cares, the same obsessions here. But unlike Esther, they're very right from the get-go, they don't assimilate. Okay, they, they even refuse the diet that they were offered when they first get there. You see that in Daniel chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And our text, or the text in Daniel chapter 1 says that, that they found favor. The, the text actually says that God brought Daniel favor. God brought Daniel favor. In chapter 2 of Esther, there's no mention of God, and it says that Esther won favor in this contest. And she won it through the privatizing of her faith, through assimilating well, through not being like Vashti, Queen Vashti. But going back to Daniel, even with their defiance, the book of Daniel, even when their defiance, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when it, when it reached the pinnacle of bowing down to a golden statue or being thrown into a furnace, Daniel's companions there didn't assimilate. Daniel chapter 3, verses 8 to 30. And the Lord preserved them. Right? So it started with refusing a diet. It started with obedience to God in small things before it progressed to obedience to God in the face of... Some, and, 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 and be sure of this that not bowing down to a statue and worshiping isn't something you cram for overnight, right? You don't go from being apathetic in your walk with God and being worldly, a worldly Christian, if there is such thing. You don't go from being a worldly Christian at nine in the morning to defying the most powerful person in the world at noon because of your deep-seated Christian convictions, Right, so, so Daniel's companions here, it started with something seemingly, from our vantage point, small, so that when we get to the place where Nebuchadnezzar is trying to make them privatize their faith, they say no. And we look and we say, that makes sense. That may, I saw that coming. All right? Now, there's many examples of faithful believers who... Who, who didn't assimilate in hostile environments, and they were murdered because of it. They weren't delivered in, in this world. But, but I, I just wanted to compare and contrast briefly different ways God's people behaved in Babylon. That's why I wanted to bring in Daniel here. But God doesn't promise deliverance in this life, necessarily. Right? But he does promise to be with you. Right? He does promise to preserve you. Here in Western society, the, the intensity of a story that we're reading about right now where people would face martyrdom, right? where, where Esther had to keep something secret because of the fear of what might come, and, and, and we'll see again the, the way Jews are viewed just by the very fact that there becomes a, a plot to completely exterminate the Jewish people that has to be thwarted. But here in Western society, we don't face martyrdom, and, and praise God, 
that we don't face that. A day may come where that's a real threat, but that's not the threat that we face today. But there are some things that we do face that reveal our idols. There are things that, that we will assimilate for. Okay? There's things that we will assimilate for. We, we long to be accepted in society or accepted by our family or accepted by our friends and, and not be seen as narrow-minded or some sort of bigoted fundamentalist. And so we privatize our faith. And I use narrow-minded, bigoted fundamentalist to show you the power of words because we all twinged a little bit when I said that, right? right? If you can mock or shame or be the one who defines terms in our Western society, you can wield a lot of power and control what people will or won't do. Right? We don't want to be canceled. We don't want to be canceled, right? We, we care about our reputations in all the wrong ways, right? And I distinguish reputation from character because reputation is different than character. And I'm not saying that we need to go around and inauthentically Jesus-juke everybody, right? That, 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 that's, not, that's not Christianity, right? That, that isn't gospel witness, and it's, not, it's frankly not sincere. It's not sincere. That's a kind of a checklist, rigid sort of approach. There's no, no thought or warmth or spiritual depth or even strategy behind something like that. But what I am pointing out for us is that the Christian faith is a public faith. It's not a private faith. It, it makes public demands like, go and make disciples everywhere. Jesus is king. Jesus is king over heaven. Jesus is king over earth. All right? Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Repent. Believe. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. All right? the kind of, this kind of faith makes demands, but its demands are accompanied by the Spirit that regenerates hearts. Now, there are also things that we can pay attention to. So if, if, we, if, I, if I just mentioned things that we will assimilate for, there are also things that we can pay attention to in our own lives if we examine ourselves to measure how much we have assimilated already into a godless society. Our view of God can be an indicator of how well assimilated we are into a godless society. Our view of, a, of the church could be an indicator. How do you view God's church? Right? How do we spend our money could be an indicator. What are our interests? What are our, what's our attitude like? Right? Do we exhibit the spirit of gratitude based on all that God's done for us in Christ Jesus? The way we speak can be an indicator of how well we've assimilated into society. Our view of sex and sexuality what is that like? Right? The things that make us laugh or entertain us can show us how well we've assimilated into society. What we bristle at are politics. Right? The, the list could go on and on and on. But the point is, is that the, priv- the privatization of our faith isn't an option. The, the gospel of God, it touches everything. 
Christ is over all of life. That's one of the reasons why public worship is so potent for us. It reminds us, us gathering here together as God's church, reminds us that our faith is public, that it has to be public, and our public worship should affect us privately when no one is looking, and publicly as ambassadors for Christ in our vocations, men, women, Moms, dads, kids, students, college students. What we're doing here this morning, it has eternal significance, but it's not some ethereal, abstract thing. It's earthy. It's earthy. As the Word of God is proclaimed, it's accompanied by the Spirit of God who's sovereign over the hearts and wills of people. And this is how we're shaped to, 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 to be private and public kingdom ambassadors, and this is how the world is changed. So first, our private, the privatizing of our faith is in an option. We confess, as God's church, a public faith with public demands that are can be obeyed by the power of the Spirit of God. So that's the first thing. Secondly, God's sovereign even over sinful actions. God's sovereign even over sinful actions. We began to see in this chapter the Lord really <clears throat> positioned Esther and, and Mordecai, but especially Esther, so that he could use her, if you know the story, so that he could use Esther to save his covenant people from extermination. We, we saw that in Vashti being removed as queen, and, and we, we see his establishing Esther, even in this very dark twisted and sinful mandatory contest, we see him working in covenant faithfulness even in the midst of that mess. Right? The, the enemy would use all of this to destroy lives. End of story. Right? And, and those who, who reject that there's a God that governs all things would call the events that we're studying meaningless. But in God's economy... Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. No suffering, no sinful decision made by man. Our triune God, who ordains whatsoever comes to pass, right, the, 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 the end from the beginning and redeems it, he works it according to his will, without being responsible at all for the evil actions of men and women, and without being tainted himself by sin. God sovereignly uses the evil actions of men and women to advance his eternally good, redemptive agenda for man, which was decreed in eternity past. As Joseph's able to say after his immense suffering, he says in Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, you guys know this, as for you, you meant evil, speaking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? For good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Right? And this is how our very salvation was orchestrated. This is how it was orchestrated. God brought the best good out of the most wicked act in human history. He brought the best good out of the most wicked act in the history of the world. The, 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 the crucifixion of the only innocent person to have ever lived which is Jesus Christ, the guilty verdict for a truly innocent man. The punishment, not just physical death, but becoming sin. Becoming the very object 
of God's hatred and His fierce wrath. The prophet Isaiah says that it was the will of the Lord to crush the Son, Isaiah 53.10. It was God's will to do that because justice had to be served and the Son of Man took all of our sins cumulatively. He took all of our sins, past, present, those sins that we've yet to commit. Through the humiliation of Jesus, His his becoming a man, is taking our sin upon Himself to the cross and suffering, again, not only the physical torture, but the physical wrath of God, it brought about our redemption. God, he, 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 He uses the evil actions of men, the evil actions of demons, without committing evil Himself, because He's good. And he does this for his own glory. He does this for our eternal good. And we see that thread all throughout Scripture. It's pervasive in Scripture. And we see it here in Esther chapter 2. God is putting all the players in place in the midst of rampant wickedness. And he does this to preserve his people. Boys and girls, God loves saving his people. And everything that He's working in your life, even all the bad stuff that happens in your life, He's working it, not just for His own glory, but He's working it so that you can know Him, so that you can be saved by Him. So I'm thankful. Us as adults, children in this room, we should be thankful that God, our God, doesn't waste a suffering. He doesn't waste anything in this life, but He orchestrates it so that we can be redeemed, restored in relationship with Him forever. Lastly, King Jesus is not like King Ahasuerus. Thank God for that, right? And this is similar to my takeaway from last week about God's kingdom not being like that of a tyrant's kingdom. But I wanted for a moment, just as we get ready to end with the sermon here. I wanted to contrast the character of King Jesus with the character of King Ahasuerus. Because Ahasuerus was in fact a king. He in fact had a kingdom. He had citizens that lived in that kingdom that he owned as his possession. And and while we shouldn't think of Jesus when we see Ahasuerus, there can be a temptation to make wrong conclusions about Jesus as a result of living under the reign of King Ahasuerus, or the spirit of King Ahasuerus, which is the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age in which we live in now, where men and women are objectified and demeaned and dehumanized. There may be some of you in this room who had an awful childhood, which included at best an absent father, at worst an abusive father. And when you hear that God is your father, you wince a little bit because a relationship that should have imaged the Lord well to you painted a picture of him that wasn't true. Perhaps you're still recovering from that. Maybe some of you come from a church culture that was abusive and and domineering. The shepherds of the church, instead of imaging Jesus, they, they devoured the sheep. So when you hear of Jesus as the chief shepherd, 
you get a sour stomach. For the Jews under King Ahasuerus, the Lord as king, as king of kings, could have brought to them some some of those same feelings and emotions. But, But it's important for us to remember that our king, our shepherd, is is nothing like Ahasuerus. It's nothing like him. And and we see that in how God, we will see that in how God delivered his people in this story. But not only is King Jesus not like King Ahasuerus, but he, it's important for us to know that he's opposed to him. He opposes that type of spirit, that type of behavior, that type of reigning and ruling. Jesus sets himself against that. Our king, King Jesus, he's not an exploiter. Our our king, King Jesus, is not a manipulator. Our king, King Jesus, is is not unstable. He's consistent. The New Testament says that he's the same Yesterday, today, and forever. Our king, he's not self-serving. He's not petty. Our king left glory. And he brought his kingdom to us because we wouldn't on our own go to him. Matthew 4, 17. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8. Our king, he pursued and rescued and restored women And he brought women into his kingdom. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. Our king, he holds no captives, but he sets captives free from their sin. Isaiah 61, verse 1. So, I want to encourage you this morning. If the spirit of King Ahasuerus is more familiar to you than the rest that King Jesus offers, what you've experienced is contrasted with Jesus. What was imaged to you was an imposter Christ, right? an anti-Christ. And your Savior, your King, He's the exact opposite. He's the exact opposite. He's good. He's dependable. He's unchanging. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He's the restorer of your soul. And He invites you to come. To simply come. To come to Him. And He'll give you rest. Eternal rest. Rest from this hamster wheel that your sin and your sorrows have you on. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank You for this time that we've had. God, to see and be reminded of the public nature of our faith, God, to... Be reminded of your sovereignty, even over wicked intentions, Lord, how you work them to accomplish your good without being stained or tainted or responsible ultimately for them. God, we thank you that that Christ is nothing like a Ahasuerus. And I pray that that these realities that we see present here in Esther chapter 2 would seep into our bones, Lord, and that in, in response we would worship you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.